the, what we felt would help legalization and move the needle with cannabis was sticking to some key tenets here. And it's, it's objectivity, it's professionalism, and it's journalism ethics. So if we are seen as a rah-rah cheerleader, everything for cannabis, that doesn't help anything because then you get lawmakers who are just like, well, of course, that's the cannabis publication. They're going to say everything's great and we should do this and blah, blah. So our approach has been to really, you know, we'll shed light on the bad parts of the industry. And, and we've got people that don't like us because guess what? This company did something and it was bad and it created a huge issue in the industry. It put a black mark on it. And so we'll write about the issues. You know, we'll discuss them at our conference. It's not all rosy, right? You're listening to To Be Blunt, the podcast for cannabis marketers, where your host Shada Taravi and her guests are trailblazing the path to marketing, educating, and professionalizing cannabis. Light one up and listen up. Here's your host, Shada Taravi. Hello, and welcome back to the To Be Blunt podcast. I'm your host, Shada Tarabi, Canvas business owner and brand marketer. And I'm just going to come out of the gate and invite you straight into my brain. Not that you have a choice because this is a show that I host, but I do try to give you a heads up depending on the direction of the discussion. And I'm just trying to prepare you that today's episode could be maximized if you can keep on track with where my brain is at. Wow, that rhymed. I didn't mean for it to rhyme, but pretty cool that it rhymed. So let's begin. I was super excited to connect with today's guest because I've admired the way he and his company have approached journalism and reporting for our industry. They've built a name for themselves as being a leader in driving the professional conversations happening in the cannabis industry. And as a cannabis professional myself, I know that we have lots of ideas and opinions about how this industry is going to open up as we work towards federal legalization. But have you ever paused and considered the role that the media plays in that evolution? Yes, no, maybe so. Well, we're about to reflect together, so buckle up and let me break down what is going on in my head. I think the word media is a big word. It encompasses a lot of things like digital media, print media, social media, but if you look at it one-dimensionally, the primary role of media is to provide information to the public. So then you start to think maybe of yourself. How do you as an individual use the media? Maybe you're a retail owner like myself, and I personally look to the media to keep me abreast of breaking news, for example, that might affect my business. Now take it another step. Maybe you're a consumer and you've never used cannabis before and you see an article about cannabis, could be positive, could be negative, and how does that shape how you will perceive this plant? Does it make you more likely or less likely to want to try it? And then another big consideration is the people in policymaking and regulatory positions. Let's not forget, they're people too, consumers, consuming the news around them. And they see the same headlines, good and bad. And of course, that influences how they view things too and shapes their opinions. Speaking of opinions, I have an unpopular opinion that I'm going to share with you. Generally speaking, cannabis people try to hide negative news and information because it detracts from the overall mission. If there are holes in the ship, 
We better plug them up soon or we won't sail to legalization and mass adoption land. If there are negative side effects to overconsuming cannabis, for example, or if there is any association of crime, we try to downplay the faults as to not distract people from the beautiful possibilities of this plant. Believe me, I understand that. It's a very difficult position that we are in. But I think that unfortunately does us a disservice in the long run as an industry, especially we need to face these hardships so we can improve. The only problem is how do you do so without shooting the progress of the industry in the foot? Because it's hard when not everyone understands the nuances of what is going on or the actual implications of something. If consumers and policymakers are reading the same headlines, how does that ultimately influence the direction that we are going knowing how reactive we all can be to a headline or breaking story? You can see these are the thoughts that are getting, you know, resurfaced in my mind when I think of this discussion. For example, when I see a headline break on the topic of federal legalization, a lot of my non-cannabis industry friends see that Safe Banking Act passed the House and assume that legalization is a go <laughs> without reading the totality of the article or even without fully understanding how policy works. They swell in excitement only to be let down when it doesn't pass the Senate. And you might be thinking, well, that's pessimistic, Shada. I argue wrong. That's being realistic. Because I'm a cannabis professional, I know how to interpret the media, whereas my neighbor might not. Which brings me to today's guest, Chris Walsh. He is the CEO of Marijuana Business Daily, also referred to as MJ Biz, and they're also the producers of the largest professional cannabis event, MJ BizCon, which, by the way, is taking place later this year in November in Las Vegas. I will be there, so put it on your calendars. If you aren't going, I went last year for the first time, and it was incredibly powerful for networking and getting better acquainted with the harsh realities of our industry, as well as being enlightened and inspired for what's to come. Chris has been the founding editor of Marijuana Business Daily since the company's launch in 2011, becoming the first journalist in the United States to focus exclusively on covering the business of cannabis. As CEO, he now guides the strategic vision of the company and its sister publication, Hemp Industry Daily, while educating mainstream industries about the marijuana and hemp sectors. My conversation with Chris discussed the juxtaposition we are in as an industry, where everyone is coming to the table absolutely seeking information. But then you have to question what is their source of media? And then what role has and what role will MJ Biz play in professionalizing and legalizing cannabis? It's a very interesting discussion. Chris is very knowledgeable. He's been covering this industry for literally the past decade, and they've been the preeminent voice on the topics, good and bad, that are facing our industry. And so there was just a lot to unpack as we reflect on a decade of MJ Biz. So I hope you're excited to tune into this discussion. I hope it gives you some insight, some perspective, and you can process through where I'm coming from and where Chris was addressing my questions, which I think are valid questions to be considering knowing the importance and opportunity that the media has to not only influence business operators, consumers, who are looking to be educated, but also the people who are writing and regulating policy and legislation on cannabis in America. So please join me by lighting one up and let's welcome Chris to the show. 
Hello, I'm Chris Walsh. I'm the CEO of MJ Biz, and we're based in the Denver area in Colorado. And we basically built a company to serve the cannabis industry with news and analysis and market research data. And that spiraled into live events for business professionals. And how did I get into this industry? I like to ask on, on my podcast as well, the same question, because everyone has a fascinating story that's different from any old industry. So in cannabis, I was not really, I did not really come through the cannabis culture. I used cannabis in college every now and then, and occasionally, very rarely after. And, you know, as I started my professional career and all the stigma and taboos and laws around it. And so I was a journalist at a business journalist at a newspaper in Colorado Springs and then in Denver. And then I kind of saw the writing on the wall with the media and my chosen career path and realized there wasn't a huge future there unless I kind of expanded my skill sets, you know, with the media experiencing layoffs and, and downsizing and newspapers and magazines closing. So I started earning my MBA and I went to South Korea for two years, stayed in journalism. And that was in, I left in 2009. When I came back from South Korea two years later in 2011, there was an actual marijuana industry in both my hometown of Denver, but also in a couple other states. And in just a very short period of time, you know, some bold entrepreneurs and pioneers decided to open up grow houses and dispensaries, even though cannabis was federally illegal. So there was this whole industry that had cropped up basically overnight. And, and so it intrigued me because it, it clearly was the chance to help a nascent industry on the ground floor. And I actually was uh, finishing up my MBA and saw a post online for an editor, a launch editor for a new publication that was targeting business owners in the cannabis space, which was still, you know, had a lot of stigma around it, but I was looking for a change and thought that, hey, we'll, we'll roll the dice. If this doesn't work out, then whatever, I'll, I'll see what's next and get away from the mainstream media and into something more specialized. So the two co-founders of what became MJ Biz hired me to help launch it and really started understanding the industry, meeting the players. This was in 2011 and really started to write for entrepreneurs and executives and investors, real news and analysis that the industry didn't have at that time. No one was really paying attention to it aside from, you know, bloggers in their basement railing against the government or writing about different strains and more consumery approach, but no one was really speaking to and helping the, the business people in it. So then we built up MJ Biz with the media side and, and developed that credibility and reach. And as I mentioned earlier, we expanded into events, MJ BizCon, you know, now the largest cannabis business event in the world. And it's been a fun journey and a fun ride. And, you know, could, could not have believed that almost 12 years later, I'd, I'd still still be in this and uh, hopefully have had a positive influence on the industry. That is so cool to learn your background in particular. Again, I feel like so oftentimes we just see people in your position and your influence and not really fully understanding, you know, kind of the breadth and background that you kind of went through to arrive at this destination. But I didn't really realize MJ Biz was over a decade old. That certainly was, you know, kind of a more interesting point that I wanted to kind of resonate on because I think when you're looking at terms of 
longevity in the cannabis industry, specifically with a business lens, it isn't something that I think a lot of businesses really can plan for the future, unfortunately, because there is so much variability when it comes to regulations, policy, even just like certain states legality. Like I'm in Texas and we're nowhere near, you know, this the acceptance of cannabis as I wish we would be. And so as a business owner myself in the state trying to plan for, okay, where do I want to see my business in three, five, 10 years is a little bit more difficult. But having resources like MJ Biz and of course the conference have been good grounding points, I think, for everybody in the industry to just have some sort of kind of like future forward thinking, which is kind of where I want to turn our conversation, you know, to get really a pulse. I mean, I think people can read about MJ Biz. I certainly read, you know, everything that y'all create on a kind of weekly basis. I feel like it's one of my main inputs of where I get informed from a news perspective. I look forward to MJ Biz conference every year. That is also as you were you know, sharing the largest conference in the world for cannabis professionals and for business to absolutely be happening in our industry. But I want to like kind of go back to 2011 to now presently 2022 and kind of halfway through 2022, looking into 2023. What has the industry evolved to look like compared to where it was when you entered? And I kind of understand, I think a little bit of where the conversation is going, right? But again, to kind of have you Being somebody who's been in a journalistic position to write these stories, to report these stories, to get all these different inputs to help kind of guide the industry. What has it been like compared 2011 to 2022 of like, are we still fighting the same fights? Are we still having the same conversation or has it gotten a little bit easier, maybe harder because we're going more mainstream? I just want to kind of start with a pulse of where have we come from and where have we gone? Because I believe we still have so much more to go. And I find that there's some issues that they seem to be repeatable issues that they don't really have to see. They don't really see any resolution to, unfortunately, right now, like in terms of banking and, and certain regulatory and taxation you know, policies. In some ways, the challenges are very similar to what they were 11, 12 years ago, and that we're still talking about the fact that the federal situation has not changed at all, which is shocking. And we still have problems with 280E, of course, and with banking, with the stigma, with pockets of resistance. So in many ways, the fundamental issues that the industry faced back then are still the same today. You know, despite the industry growing to, you know, according to our fact book, 25, you know, to $30 billion in sales, the federal government dragging its feet to, to really change laws or, or reform them and allow this industry to, to move forward kind of under the blessing of the federal government, it hasn't happened. But the changes aside from that have been immense. So when we started, you know, and this was when anyone in the cannabis industry was taking on huge risks personally, you didn't know if you were going to get raided or shut down or arrested. And that did happen at that time. You had a wave of raids. So think of this, if you were newer to this industry, there was a period where you actually could get raided by federal agents, right? And they were coming in and they just take all your crop or destroy it and then leave. And then your business was basically, you know, shuttered. And you had to figure out, well, are they going to prosecute me now? Or am I just left here with, you know, kind of in shambles trying to figure out what I do next? And so if you, and also professionally, if you got in this industry, you didn't know if you came from a mainstream industry and it didn't work out cannabis, you didn't know if you could go back to your old industry because they might say, well, you were in the marijuana industry. We don't want anyone from there. Like, what did you do? 
So think think of operating in that time, right? There was no blueprint for how to operate a business, whether it was a, a dispensary or a grow or an edibles company or even an ancillary company that doesn't touch the plant like ours. There was no blueprint. So when you you mentioned earlier, you know, looking at your business vision and your your strategy and your business plan and planning three, five, ten years out, you were planning like a week out back then. <laughs> like you're just like, you know, hopefully we'll still be in business, right? And even for us, because we were dependent on those companies, that affected us as well. And so when there were raids in California, there was a big wave of raids uh, in Montana and Washington and even in Colorado. We didn't know if the whole industry was going to collapse. So it's very interesting about, I think, seven or eight months after we started what became MJ Biz Daily, I took a foot out of the industry and started researching kind of business trade publication ideas for other industries that had nothing to do with cannabis, because that was the background of the founders, myself and journalism. And so I was I was looking up and researching, hey, maybe we do, you know, business advice and and research for veterinarians, right? Like nothing to do with cannabis, because we didn't want all our eggs in this basket, right? And if it collapsed, then there goes everything. So that's the environment that we started in and that everyone was operating in. And then it started to drastically change when you had, you know, these these memos from the federal government that basically, you know, these famous coal, coal memo and, and other memos that came out that basically gave a, a path forward that the federal government wasn't going to aggressively go after cannabis companies that were operating under state regulation. So that really changed a lot of things in, in 2011, 2012. And then you had the first wave of states legalizing for adult use. And we didn't even know if an industry, I was actually very skeptical that an industry would would materialize when Colorado and Washington legalized recreational because it was like, well, it's still federally legal. Medical marijuana has had its problem. There's no way the federal government's going to allow recreational. So a lot of uncertainty back then, right? You had no idea what was ahead, but the momentum started changing drastically. The, the raids and the enforcement started dwindling and cannabis started becoming more mainstream as polling improved and, you know, you got over the 50, 60, 70, 80% mark for support for medical marijuana legalization. Recreational industry started taking off in Colorado and Washington without raids and all of that. And then states really started regulating their industries. Just one quick point I want to make is when we started, the majority of states that had legalized medical cannabis and had dispensaries operating, they didn't have regulations around or they weren't strict regulations. So this whole thing we're used to now with, you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions to get it to start up, to apply for licenses, to get your security systems. That wasn't around. So people were starting businesses with $10,000 growing in their home and starting delivering and then buying a dilapidated storefront in a, in a weird area of town and just selling out of that, right? So those days are gone in every market. But yeah, that was the situation. So when we looked at today, when we started, there were, you know, I think it was 12, 13 states that had legalized medical. We're, we're, you know, triple that now. There was no recreational. You know, we have 19 states that have legalized recreational now. So in a, in a decade, this industry rose above ground very quickly. It went from a billion dollars in sales when we started, according to our estimates, to, you know, 20, 25, 26, 27 billion uh, with the potential to double in the next five years. And you've seen more professionals come in. I mentioned you were taking on personal and professional risks coming in back then. And now those have, those are much smaller. I mean, there's risks involved in the industry, but people aren't really worried they're going to go to jail if they're doing things right. And it's not going to destroy your career if you want to go in another direction. So those are just some of the changes. A lot of mainstream professionals coming in now, joining at the C-suite, 
you know, starting their own cannabis companies, mainstream companies starting new divisions in cannabis. And and now we're we're a legit real industry with lots of challenges and problems, but big, big change from a decade ago. Yeah, I can't imagine just covering it because the sheer amount of people that you're interacting with, whose stories you're reporting on and just the different industries that are popping up state to state and even municipality to municipality, it just it's so much variability. And, and it is really cool, I'm sure, to see it in your lifetime, how much change has been impacted. But I can't help but think, you know, with all that change, I think a big part of the conversation that I at least get confronted with a lot when I'm talking to guests for this podcast, and I know that you're in a similar position because you're reporting on all these different subcultures and different, you know, versions and iterations of the community. You mentioned mainstream. We've been talking about mainstream. I think it's inevitable, right? If you're going towards federal legalization above ground, setting parameters, professionalizing the industry. And I think maybe that's a little bit of influence, at least speaking for myself, coming from the professional world. I aim to help professionalize cannabis. I want cannabis to be seen as something that, you know, a soccer mom or my dad can be using, myself included as, you know, I'm engaged. I own a house. Like I pay my bills. I use cannabis just as, you know, my neighbor wants to go have happy hour with her girlfriends. But I also respect and reflect on the legacy kind of of, you know, obviously where the industry really originated from and where it's evolved from. But there seems to be this tension and kind of like this resistance towards legalization, at least in terms of operators. And so I'm just curious what your thoughts are, your perspective, how you approach that conversation, especially being somebody who orchestrates a lot of conversations and creates these experiences through the conference, you know, arm. It's like, how do you kind of, you know, this is where we came from and we get it. You all, you know, don't want government interference. But at the same time, we can't shy away from this is the direction that it's going. And we need, you know, reform and we need policy and we need parameters and boundaries to operate in. It's like, I, I wish we could all just grow freely in our, you know, backyards and nobody is going to check. But I also think of it, too, from a consumer perspective and you have consumer safety in mind and then you're getting into standardization and how do you create standard experiences for consumers who are turning to these products like me growing up you know hotboxing my car in my parents garage is a different use case than let's say my mom who's trying to take it to help her have better consistent sleep as she's going through you know different stages of her life as as an aging woman so Again, that's the trend. It's inevitable, but there seems to be resistance within our industry from covering all these stories over the years. How do you address kind of where we came from to be, you know, respected, but also we have to acknowledge we need professionalism in this industry to survive? Yeah, and this has been a big topic at, at MJ BizCon and our, and our other conferences. You, you do have a, a bit of a clash now between kind of the, the people who got in years ago who believed in the plant and that was their main motivation. And yes, they wanted to make money, but, you know, they were thrilled that the legalization was sweeping the country and they saw an opportunity to help get cannabis to patients or even to users. And don't think there should be any restrictions on this or, or different ones that have evolved. And then you have the subsequent waves of people coming in who see more of the business opportunity. Maybe they have no relation to the plant. Again, I've been in it a long time. We have, we didn't have a relation, but we understood and embraced what cannabis was, saw the value that it was bringing. And if you don't embrace that, that's where a lot of the friction is because you have these people coming in, they don't understand cannabis. They're applying just a business mindset to the industry. And so it's all about the balance and, and it can't go 
back to where it was in that climate, right? That's not going to lead to further legalization, to an improvement in public opinion. I mean, things back then were ugly. I mean, you'd go to these shops with no regulations and it felt weird, right? It, it, it didn't put a good face on the industry. Not in every case, right? But there were cer- certainly plenty of problems then and it wasn't very professional. And so now you're almost seeing it swing a completely other direction, you know, in the, in the opposite direction. And that's if to a lot of people, it's feeling more like any other industry. It's feeling very corporate, or at least that it's going in that direction. You've got people coming in, buying up some of the old companies, many of them that were struggling. And sometimes the owners are getting kicked out. They're getting maybe screwed over because they don't understand business as much. And you've got these aggressive people that, you know, know how to conduct M&A and they, they're focused on the bottom line and they know how to negotiate. And, and so you're seeing more of this friction, right? And it, it's all about finding that middle ground. And I think the issue now is it, the regulatory structure, like which one is best and how can we do this for the industry? It really depends on where you sit. So it's there a is no dollar question. Yeah. I mean, if, if you're a big MSO, you want a tight restrictions on how many licenses there can be in a state, then the hopes that you get them and then you have a natural buffer to competition, right? But if you're a small mom and pop or you're someone that doesn't have a lot of access to capital, you want a situation like Oklahoma where you can get in really cheaply and then it's like Wild West, it's chaotic and it's it's actually very hard to compete there. But that's a preferable if you can get in versus not getting in at all in a state where it costs a million dollars and they're only handing out 20 licenses and you're competing against people with way more money, way more experience. So, and then if you're really into you know, the patients or the users, you have a completely different idea of how this should be structured. And, and the tax rates is a big issue. You know, that if they're too high, they're, they're, people are going back to the illicit market. If they're too low, the states don't see the value in it or they can't fund enforcement regulations. So it's an interesting experiment that we're, we're seeing play out, right? And we don't, we're not at the end yet. You know, in 10, 20 years, we might be able to look back and say, this is the ideal situation for cannabis legalization and cannabis oversight and regulations, but we don't know yet. And so some states are doing some things better than others. But if your concerns are over here, you're viewing it through a different lens than someone over here. And so that's where there's a lot of, you know, also friction because, you know, you look at California and it's a mess. California is a mess. You talk to everyone who's, who's in business there and you know, there's, there's regulatory issues all over the place. There's, um, you know, every, every part of California is different. So it's like eight different markets in one. And, uh, and then you got the illicit market, which is still thriving and the companies can't compete if you're trying to do the right thing because the regulatory costs are so high and the taxes. So that's where you have some people really frustrated with how this has played out, especially those who have been in it for a while. And so there's no right answer. And every state is a completely different environment, right? And uh, that's going to continue to be the case for the foreseeable future. And states, you know, the Eastern, the Eastern markets are so different than the Western. And now you see a lot of people targeting the Eastern states for expansion or just to get into the industry. That's where new opportunities are, right? But they're also different opportunities. And so Colorado's and Washington and Oregon are mature markets. It's hard to crack into them now. We're starting to see evidence of what happens when cannabis hits a maturation point. And there's new challenges these states are facing, right? As this rapid growth of purchases and use and excitement starts to wane, and then things start to flatten or stagnate, these new challenges, you know, companies are dealing with. So it's a fascinating, you know, case study across the country of how this is developing. Oh, I like that you called it now just a case study and before an experiment, because it truly is what it is. And I think, you know, people in our position, at least who are 
talking at a more national level, I think can start to see some of the unique markets that are happening. Like you're mentioning Oklahoma, completely different market than Colorado, completely different than California. Yes, some brands do play in multi-state markets, but you know, if you're just a small business owner, for example, here just in Austin, you're probably not paying attention to what's going on in these other states because it doesn't impact you, doesn't affect you. But to step back and look at the state of everything, obviously, with the end point being federal legalization, I think it's a really murky kind of, you know, approach that I'm really curious what your thoughts are on legalization, because my opinion of legalization has changed over the years. And I'll share kind of why. I think when I was a consumer and my listeners know this, legalization to me was, oh, I want to be able to buy cannabis in Texas. Like, yes, of course. I think we all want to be able to freely buy, consume, not be penalized, not be demonized, etc. As a business owner now operating in the industry in a state that is to your point too, you know, we don't have, we don't, we don't know how Texas is going to really legalize yet. And so I'm very mindful and very cautious. Okay. Well, are you going to be limited licensure? Are you going to be, you know, vertical integration required? What are going to be the parameters? What is the license going to even cost? You know, some states is very reasonable. Oklahoma is really reasonable. New Mexico is really reasonable just coming online. And then Texas, we have a very, very immature medical marijuana market. It's, I believe, a 400000 thousand dollar license every two years. It's like, I don't know what small business has access to that. So projecting in towards federal legalization to me is no longer just flipping a light switch on and we have legalization. Now you're thinking of interstate commerce. Some of my previous guests have even shared, there's no way we would have interstate commerce because you have each of these micro, not micro, but states are implementing their own structure. So it's like if I'm New Mexico and I'm building all this infrastructure and creating all this economy, I don't want it to leave and go out of my state. So my view of legalization has become diluted and twisted. And it's hard for me to really understand. It's like, are we going to get banking? Great. Obviously, everybody wants banking. Okay. Are we going to decriminalize it? Great. We're going to, you know, rectify all the wrongs that were done. We're going to release all these prisoners. We're going to stop, you know, creating crimes around cannabis, but interstate commerce, regulation to me also reflecting. And I know you guys have Hemp Industry Daily, which is obviously a hemp publication. To me, because we have federal legalization with hemp and we still have so many bad restrictions and regulations and non-enforcement in some capacities, and you don't have any consistencies with testing on a federal level for hemp, I'm like, you guys are kidding me. We're going to have federal legalization of full-on marijuana in the near-term future. I think there's a lot to sort out, but then the other flip of that is, right, the cat's out of the bag, so we can't, you know wait too long. We do need to get towards federal legalization. So I'm just curious, again, with your expertise, understanding background, the conversations that you're a part of, what does legalization at a federal level look like to you? And what are the steps that we as an industry need to collectively take to actually see, again, not just a light switch flip, but like actually a good federal program implemented for the industry to continue to to survive and thrive? Well, it, won't, it definitely won't be a light switch. And I think what we're seeing, as you mentioned with hemp, is is there's going to be a lot of messiness, right? I mean, the the hemp situation, we you know, the FDA is saying, you know, oh, we're going to, sounds like it's going to take a decade for them to research whether it could be an ingestible products, but they're not really enforcing anything. And then states are just saying, screw it, we're not waiting for the federal government. We're going to create our own CBD laws. And, and you can see how messy this is going to get if we ever get to that point, when we get to that point federally. I think it's not going to be a, you know, here's a, 
massive comprehensive bill like Schumer is working on. And here we go here. Now, now it's federally legal. States can set their own course. And we have all these uh, you know, social equity components and we thought of everything. And here you go. It, that's not going this is how this is going to work. It's going to be incremental change. It's going to be a hopeful change to banking, a hopeful change to tax the 280E situation over time. And then at some point, a, you know, states can decide on their own to legalize. And here's some fundamental things that have to happen with some federal government oversight, you know, but that could, that could get really messy. So there's a lot of people who look at the situation now and say, I actually don't want federal legalization because it's going to mess everything up. We have a buffer right now. If you're building a business in cannabis, you are not competing against McDonald's and Starbucks and Coke and, you know, Amazon and Microsoft or any big company that can find a path forward in cannabis, um, you know, big tobacco, big ag, we're not competing against them, or at least with their full force. They're, they're kind of coming directly, in. Directly, yeah, indirectly. Way. Yeah, but so so a lot of people just say, hey, this is a great situation. And and then so so to your point, we look to him and we say, look at what's going on with that. And that's not pretty. Marijuana is going to be a completely different situation. There are t- times 100, the concerns of federal lawmakers, how, how do we handle testing and interstate commerce and you know, this is going to play out over many, many, many years. But I think the 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 path forward that I see now is incremental change, you know, leading up to 10, 20 years down the road where a lot of things have been considered, uh, a lot of laws have changed more piecemeal. I could be wrong. You never know. But I mean, we can't even get a change to banking, right? We can't even agree federally in Congress that, yeah, we need to, you know, allow normal banking for a $25 billion industry you know, with with hundreds of thousands of employees and tens of thousands of companies that is legal in majority of the country, we can't even get banking, right? So I think that, and I don't see anything that's going to change, right? Every Everything is going to be a fight and it's going to come over time. And that's why I'm really uh, disappointed that, you know, there's some key federal lawmakers uh, like Cory Booker, who they, they're supportive of cannabis, but we're fractured even even in Congress, right? Even in people who support it and want to change laws and support the industry. Well, when you've got leading advocates for legalization and reform saying, you know, hey, what, don't don't go, don't support a banking fix. You know, don't support that because we need to, that's only a little step and then no one will care. We won't get to the point of full legalization that has social equity components and all that. But that's like, so, so you're fighting against each other. And then the, the easiest path forward is these little things that make a big difference like banking. So if you're taking support from that and saying, no, 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 we've got to have a bigger thing, that's not going to pass anytime soon. I mean, my God, we can't, we can't get support around anything these days, let alone something as controversial as cannabis legalization. So that's really been disheartening to me, especially this year when we do, we still have a couple months, uh, our best window, right, to change marijuana laws at the federal level until the midterms. Because you've got Democrats who traditionally support cannabis change, they're likely going to not control much after these midterms. And I think hopes for for change will dim, at least for a while after that. So I don't know how it's going to play out. There's still hope that we can get this banking thing passed this year because it's been tucked into a bigger kind of jobs and and economy boosting bill. But that infighting, even at the federal level, is very frustrating. (laughs) 
quick break to say thank you to Restart CBD for sponsoring this podcast. Restart CBD is a brand my sisters and I founded in our hometown in Austin, Texas. We operate a retail location as well as an e-commerce store, and you can browse our wide range of CBD products at restartcbd.com. Again, thank you to Restart for allowing me the time and resources to put on To Be Blunt. I hope you'll check them out for your CBD needs. Let's go back to the episode. Yeah, it is really frustrating. And again, I think as people who perhaps spend more time invested in those conversations or could see it from that more national level, it's more apparent. And I think that's what I try to at least, you know, introduce into my audience here on this podcast is to think a little bit more beyond just we want legalization. It's like, okay, well, what does that actually look like? And what is actually benefit for the larger sum? And how do we work towards that? So given that information, MJ Biz Daily being a publication, right, you are crafting and reporting and talking about these subjects. How does that influence some of these conversations at a government level from a policy perspective? Like, to me, I'm just trying to get at kind of a little bit of a, how do you start to make the change? Like, how do you get these people to listen? Is it possible to, like, is there like a group of, you know, let's say executives in the industry who are on speed dial to these politicians who they can say, hey, what you guys are doing is stupid, or obviously this would really help us if you could just legalize banking. Like, how do we get through to them? And then does the media help or hurt sometimes those stories because I think the flip side of that, right, at least I'm the recipient of a lot of it, my non-cannabis peers and friends, my customers, perhaps, anytime an article gets reported, oh, you know, Schumer's, you know, iterating on the banking bill. It's like my customers come in and they're like slamming their phones down or the magazine or the article. And it's like, oh, look, this is awesome. Or even recently in Austin, we just got decriminalization passed and all my customers are like, oh, this means we're legal now. I'm like, I don't think you guys really understand, obviously, respectfully, but Sometimes these media stories, they uh, they distract or they, you know, excite in a way that doesn't actually produce tangible change or a path forward. And so I'm just trying to get at how do you use the media to actually help the situation or does it really not, you know, for better or worse help because their politicians are kind of, you know, cannibalizing themselves thinking they're trying to go for bigger legalization efforts and we really just need them, you know, interim to pass banking because that would be a huge step at least to, you know, protect a lot of the businesses that are being impacted at multiple levels to to not have access to proper finance solutions. Yeah, it's tricky because, you know, most people just read a headline these days, right? We're in the Twitter age. So, you know, people are making assumptions very, very quickly when something happens. So if you say the House passes a legalization bill, that's all they'll see, even if the very next sentence is, but it will likely die in the Senate, you know, like, so, so then people think it's legal, right? So, and that's, and it's just the world we live in, right? So you can be as clear as possible. So to your point, yeah, I've seen a lot of hype over things and it's like, well, if you look at the bigger picture or you read the whole piece or listen to the whole, whatever it is, TV segment, radio, whatever, there's, you know, it's not legalization, you know, you know, there's a lot of different elements to it, but people don't have the patience to wade through. It's a very complicated situation right now. I mean, that's just a challenge we face in general. If you're in the media, we're just trying to communicate anything these days, no matter where you said it. But I think the, what we've always tried to do is what we felt would help legalization and move the needle with the cannabis was sticking to some, some key tenets here. And it's, it's, you know, objectivity, it's professionalism and it's journalism ethics. So 
you know, if we are seen as a rah-rah cheerleader, everything for cannabis, that doesn't help anything because then you get lawmakers who are just like, well, of course, that's the cannabis publication. They're going to say everything's great and we should do this and blah, blah. So our approach has been to really, you know, we'll shed light on the bad parts of the industry. And, and we've got people that don't like us because guess what? This company did something and it was bad and it created a huge issue in the industry. It put a black mark on it. it and so we'll write about the issues. You know, we'll discuss them at our conference. It's not all rosy, right? It's just like we when we have approached where we get a lot of traction is with our marijuana business fact book, because every year we put that out. And it's got data on the industry. It's got our projections for how big it is, how big it's it's going to be, the economic impact, you know, all these things. And we've seen lawmakers actually use charts from this, right? When they're trying to understand the industry or communicate it to others, and whether it's at the local level or the federal level, but you have to have the foundation of the credibility to do that. So that's what that's how we try to help that. I think as people, hopefully, as people become familiar with what we do, and we know lawmakers do read us or look at us or when they're doing their research, right? And we're hoping that our credibility over the years comes through because there's a lot of fluff. There's a lot of crap out there, right? There's there's faulty estimates and it makes things, oh, this is an $800 billion industry and everyone's going to have a great job and be able to start a company that's going to fix schools and roads and we're going to live in this utopia, right? That's not that's not how it is, right? And so if we if we can be true to our main principles, that's how we see it from the media side is stay the course, do what we do best and, and put a realistic, you know, reporting and communication about what's going on in this industry, what the challenges are, how companies are navigating through it, the successes, the failures, all of that. And hopefully that, you know, trickles out there. I mean, it is when you talk about what can the industry do, you know, this is a, an age old question. You've, you've had policy groups, you've got industry groups, you've got MPP, NCIA, you know, a bunch of different acronym groups out there that have been, they've been lobbying for years, right? And they've been having capital days where they go and they meet with lawmakers and it's a long process. It's not going to be one meeting of executives or of a policy group or of advocates that changes things. It's time and time again, hammering it home, you know, and, and trying to say that all these stereotypes about the industry are not true that the people involved in it, the people using marijuana are quote unquote normal people, right? That's the perception is that uh, this is a weird subculture. And so the more we as an industry can can have, have deep conversations about where it's going and the more we can bring in professionals from outside that now see the opportunities and put a good face on it to those people who think it's, you know, still this counterculture thing. You know, if you're getting people who worked at Goldman Sachs and you know, people who worked at, at Amazon and, and all these people with track records in other industries, that, that does help us overall present a reputable professional face to the industry. But it is a tricky question. You've had new groups crop up recently that they are. They're getting some of the bigger cannabis executives, some of the leading advocacy people involved, and they're lobbying as well and putting more money into it. I mean, honestly, at the end of the day, I think we all know how it works federally. It's money. So, you know, the bigger the lobbying arm of cannabis can be, the more influence it'll have. And, and that's that's really, I think, what's going to what's really going to change things. And then it's also just the spread of legalization and people realizing that what they were told as a kid, you know, including lawmakers, uh, it is not true. And when their states start legalizing, so the more red states, quote unquote, red states that legalize medical and recreational, the better chances we have of that trickling up, because then these law, federal lawmakers have to represent their state. And if their state is legalized, uh, you know, then that starts changing their views. And lastly, I'd just say that it needs a new generation of lawmakers. And, you know, the people that are holding up cannabis reform in Congress, they're old. And, and it's not an age thing. It's a it's a the time they grew up, the 
the perceptions they have had their entire life that they are unwilling to change. And they're unwilling to look at the industry with fresh eyes and consider all viewpoints and then make their own new decision on what they think it is. Even if that new decision is the same as before, they're they're unwilling to even consider it. So it's just kind of rubber stamping, you know, vetoes basically like we're not even going to consider this in a committee or we're not going to bring this to a vote because it's weed, you know, it's marijuana, there's no way. And it's this, you know, these are losers of society and, and they still have that view. They still think the industry is run by potheads that have no other options and the people that use it, you know, are on the fringes of society. These are not my views again. This is uh, obviously... So it's going to take another wave of, of honestly younger people who are willing to to view this differently. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it's really interesting, again, as I've begun to get more involved in policy advocacy work, realizing how glacially slow some of this progress actually is. And I want to loop back around. You're talking about, you know, obviously lobbying plays a major impact. Funds behind lobbying efforts plays an even bigger impact. And so to kind of bring it back, you know, I, I think it's so fascinating to me as much as we resist and, and I'll put myself in that same bucket. I think I'm very fearful and cautious of MSOs. You know, I wouldn't say that I'm negative or anti-MSOs. There are certainly small brands who have figured out how to operate in different states, qualifying them, you know, under the term of a multi-state operator. But I think, you know, we're a little gun shy to the term of like, oh, we got, you know, the pharmaceutical guys coming in or the tobacco gals coming in or Amazon, you know, releasing their statement last year about how they're not going to drug test their employees. And it's like, well, whoa, what do these things do when you start to see them get involved in the industry? The first I think reaction is negative, right? It's like, crap, I don't want these people in the industry. I want to keep it for myself. But then there's the, you know, the business side of me that understands I don't have buckets of money like Jeff Bezos. And if Jeff Bezos wants to dump his buckets of money into lobbying and legalization efforts and research, and I can't say that he's doing those, you know, explicitly, but just the idea of some of these larger organizations with funds or these multi-state operators coming together and making an impact in their policy, like that is helping our industry. But then it's almost like they then are in control of the narrative almost. And so I think that's where it's a really difficult, delicate discussion that is more than just, ah, I hate these people or yeah, we're pro-legalization. It's it's okay, well, who's behind it? How are they going to actually implement these new laws? Like, what is the influence going to have? Like, I, I remember talking to Steve D'Angelo. He was on the podcast last year, and he told me about a law that Florida has. And I, I haven't really corroborated it. Maybe you're familiar with it. Florida is medical, obviously, and they have only limited licensure, but they have a clause, I believe, that qualifies you to get a license only if you had owned a nursery for 30 years. Right. That's crazy to me. And that is at the influence of, I'm assuming, somebody who has lobbying money, who's going to the local policymaker saying, hey, we can legalize and only if it's for our organizations and only if it's under these circumstances. And so then again, a consumer in Florida is like, hell yeah, I got, you know, medical marijuana and I qualify. Great. But then from a business perspective, that market is completely locked. It's full of MSOs. And there's not a lot of opportunity for small business to to have opportunity to exist in that market. And so it's just a really 
difficult thing for me to, you know, wrestle with. And I know there's not a punctuation point of like, aha, this is the right way or this is the wrong way. But I'm just trying to get people to think a little bit deeper behind some of these blanket terms that we issue out in this industry and why we think certain things are the way they are. And it's like, okay, well, again, we need these organizations with these deep pockets to, I believe, really, truly help progress our industry forward. But at the same time, it's like, okay, well, they got legalization for them. And then how does that actually trickle down to the small business owner? So I don't know if you have any thoughts to add to that kind of observation. Yeah, I mean, this is the big concern right now is as these companies come in, you know, they are going to shape the laws, you know, federally because they're the ones with money there. It's that's what we see in every industry, right? It's the big players who put the money into politics, into lobbying that ultimately help influence the most how things shape up. So I, I, it's a valid fear, right? Because an MSO in cannabis has a completely different set of priorities and, and a different idea of what regulation and legalization should look like. We've talked about this several times. It's they want limited license. They want a merit-based. You have to apply. Guess what? We're an MSO. We have a lot of money. We've done this in other states. We got a good chance of winning a license versus, you know, the, the local who is somehow able to find the capital you know, to apply and and show that they can start the operation that has no experience in the above ground cannabis market. You're at a huge disadvantage. So, you know, hopefully going forward, and I think this will be the case, Florida should be an outlier going forward. It, it you know, it, it has been great for the companies that got in, that were able to, because they are protected and they dominate that market, right? The fact that, you know, a, floor, a company in Florida can go buy another chain out of Arizona, you know, truly buying Harvest, is mind-boggling because, you know, Florida started way later. You know, Arizona has rec. Harvest had been around for a long time, but but this newer company was able to do that because they've got a great market to them. And I'm not criticizing truly or anything, but just saying that that market, it evolved to support big players. And and I think it was done with fears of of the wrong people getting involved. I don't, I don't think it was built that way. I think it was the the concept was like, whoa, we're marijuana freaking out. Our voters, voters legalized it. We need professional people in here and it can't be too widespread. We can't have a thousand companies, you know, of, of varying degrees of sophistication and regulatory compliance. But this is what it's become. It's a big market with just a few players. And so hopefully we'll find a balance going forward. The one thing I'll say to your point is what gives me hope is it's very hard to pass a state legalization measure now without considering social equity, right? Without considering small businesses. You've seen this in New York really trying to say, okay, we've got to carve this out from the social equity side. We cannot have this dominated by big companies. So they have provisions in there to support, you know, smaller entrants. So I'm hoping that you can't pass or or, or that, that states will not regulate, you know, the industry and, and just put it into the hands of a few. And I think that will carry through with federal wherever we see there, because you kudos to, to Schumer and Booker for considering these things and wanting them in the bill. No one's going to like their bill like 100 percent. Everyone's going to pick things out of it they don't like. But at least they're thinking in the right way. Like this isn't just, you know, supporting big companies. This isn't just about letting states legalize or approving banking. Like, let's take into account the issues. And part of those issues are. Smaller people can't get involved. Smaller companies can't compete. People from different backgrounds can't get in. And so that gives me hope. The other thing is it's still a very fragmented industry and it will be for a long time. And so while there's a Florida out there, guess what? There's also an Oklahoma where you can get in even lower, right? And then there's also a New York, which has carved out things for social equity and for small players. Uh, so, you know, it's it's not going to be a blanket structure across the country. And in some cases, that's bad. And in, in some cases like this, it's good. 
Because if the opportunity isn't there for you in Florida, you can look into other markets and there will there, there's a better chance that you can get involved. Yeah, that's a great perspective. I think it is just, you know, kind of reflecting on perhaps where we came from as an industry and just some of the blind spots that we had. And obviously the social equity component, just the consideration for small players to have an opportunity in participating from a business perspective in this industry is, you know, a beat that is constantly being banged no matter where I find myself in this industry. And so that does give me hope too. I just, you know, sometimes feel like we just don't know what we don't know. And because this industry is moving so fast and there are so many players, there is so much activity happening, I think from a larger conglomeration, larger business, even like outside influence business perspective, it just it creates, I think, a, a rightfully natural fear, but a fear nonetheless. And so you know, just kind of coming at it from a business perspective, obviously a small business perspective. It's like, you're looking for opportunity. How do I stay nimble? How do I make an impact? What, like, what can I be doing? And so Mm -hmm. kind of a follow-up to that is, you know, knowing you have these publications, you put on this very broad, very well-attended, very well-received conference. How do you, you know, kind of empower, I guess, the small business owner and the small businesses who are looking to your resources as guideposts to help, you know, inspire, inform, encourage them along this journey. I'm just curious, you know, how how that how that consideration is in everything that's going on, because there's so many things that we can care about in this industry. But obviously, from a business perspective, it's like you want to empower those people. Yeah. And that's I mean, that's what you know, that's what the conference is all about. It's not just a conference for the big players. And and I think, you know, through our content at the conference, we address issues like this. Like, how do you compete if you're a one shop operation and you're, you know, everyone around you is part of a big chain or is in, in multiple states or or it has, you know, 50% market share, right? It's, it's really, for us, it's writing about that. It's, it's spurring conversations on that, whether it's, you know, through conference content at MJ BizCon, whether it's through a magazine article on, you know, in Marijuana Business Magazine, whether it's on MJ Biz Daily. These are the issues that we're here for, right? That we're here to spark that conversation, to highlight the challenges that business owners are facing across the board, whether it's, uh, you know, from drought or, or pests in their grow to, Hey, how do I compete in a changing landscape? Right. And, and it's, it's not just focusing on one side or the other. Like we've been talking about MSOs and I give a ton of credit to like, truly like, look, they've become one of the largest MSOs and are are acquiring and it takes really strong business sophistication. And there's the role for that in the industry. And there's a place for that. There's also a place for the smaller people and their concerns. So it's about, that's how we foster the discussion and shed light on it. Because if we're not doing that as kind of the, the main media serving this industry and the main conference, you know, where else are these discussions going to happen on a larger scale? So we always take these into account and, and try and be those, foster those thought leadership type discussions. And, you know, we, you know, getting a, a small business owner on stage at MJ BizCon talking about, hey, this is, this is what I'm doing to compete. Guess what? I've carved out a niche in the industry and I'm doing well. Like that, that then other people can learn from that, talk to them after, you know, get a blueprint for how they can compete. And, uh, and so that's how we try and support the industry. And I, and I guess the bigger picture for me too is, you know, my hope is that this will evolve more like the beer industry over time. And a lot of people have used this analogy. I've used it for years too, but you know, for a long time, it was just the big guys. It was just the Budweiser's and the cores. Uh, and, and that was really all anyone drank and all, and, and who served the industry. But now, you know, you've have this thriving ecosystem of craft brewers, right? And even against these big companies with lots of money, with lots of reach, they know how to brand, they know how to market, they know how to scale. 
look what's happened. They are buying up craft breweries because they were getting their lunch handed to them. You know, so I, I think in cannabis, there will always be a place for small businesses, but you're going to have to, to really learn what sets you apart and where the weaknesses are of the giant chains, whether it's in edibles or whether it's in retail or whether it's in cultivation. And so again, we, we try and do this by, you know, we've had keynotes at MJ BizCon that, that have done this in other industries. You know, we had Dave and John from Shark Tank and FUBU, you know, who could crack into the clothing world at that time, right? It's like, and he created this clothing empire out of his mom's, you know, basement. And, and so these types of stories show you that even if the MSOs or the big brands start dominating things, there are always going to be opportunities. Love this episode of To Be Blunt? Be sure to visit theshadaturabi.com slash to be blunt for more ways to connect. New episodes come out on Mondays. And for more behind the scenes, follow along on Instagram at theshadaturabi.com.